Our Old Covenant reading this evening comes from the prophet Nahum. We'll be looking at the entirety of chapter 2. This is the word of God. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She she is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Our new covenant rating this evening comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 to 12. This is the word of God. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, 
when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name, at the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flowers of the field, they fade, they fall. But this, the word of our God from Nahum chapter 2 and from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it endures forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to your word this evening. Your word that in many ways is heavy as it speaks of the heaviness of the burden that fell upon Nineveh. Lord, it speaks to the truth that you have revealed to us. And we pray, Lord, that as we consider these words, that you would remind us again what you have done and who you are. And Lord, that you would press those truths deeply upon our hearts, that we would be shaped and fashioned into the image of Christ our Savior. We ask in his name. Amen. If you're not already in Nahum chapter 2, I'd encourage you to turn back there as we look at this chapter uh, this evening. As if you didn't know from reading it, Nahum chapter 2 is a remarkable depiction of the siege that the Lord through Nahum declared that would come upon Nineveh. In quite dramatic and illustrative language, the prophet predicts in in this vivid detail, the fate of God's judgment that has fallen upon Assyria for their wickedness. Now, if we think for a moment about the purpose and about the audience of the prophet's oracle, we need to remember that these words were not really for Nineveh. The intent of this burden is not that Nineveh would reform itself and repent. Last week we saw it is the end of the line for Nineveh. Their fate is sealed in the decree of God's judgment. And so really, these words are the words of the Lord to his people. Which is why, of course, we have them today as God's inscripturated word. This is God's word to his people. What then is the purpose of providing such vivid foretelling of the destruction of this pagan city? Well, it's not so that Judah could take delight in the horror and the atrocity of the bloodshed of their enemy. If that's the case, if they're just gloating in bloodshed, then they would simply be engaging in the same depraved perversity that the Assyrians engaged in. 
Rather, for Judah, receiving these words decades before Nineveh was actually invaded would have been just the assurance any who are trusting in the Lord would need to instill comfort amid the ongoing turmoil that they're facing. You see, knowing where we stand before the Lord and knowing where history is going in His hands has a way of comforting God's people and providing hope amid affliction. I'm sure for many of you, when you face trials of various kinds, I'm sure there's a few passages of God's Word that that stabilize and soothe your soul. Are there not? Passages about God's character and about His purposes and about His plans. One such passage is probably found in Romans 8.31, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? For Judah, the Lord has afflicted them by the hand of Assyria. But that didn't mean that he had abandoned them. And in the passage before us this evening, we see clearly that the Lord is acting for his people as he is against his and their enemy because his covenant and the promises of that covenant never fail. Though his people may be afflicted, he is faithful to his promises. We saw last week how the single act of God's judgment against Nineveh could secure two diametrically opposed fates, right? On the one hand, you had the destruction of Assyria. But that destruction of Assyria meant something very different for Judah. It meant deliverance. It meant salvation from their enemies, And chapter 2 here gives us a vivid foretelling of the destruction and the humiliation of the great and fearsome city of Nineveh. The progression of destruction here begins with the announcement of the invasion there in verses 1 and 2. The scatterer, Nahum says, has come against you. When the Lord raises up his instrument of judgment, the Babylonians, they will come against Assyria just as Assyria had scattered the nations before them. Now, this is not an announcement that should be surprising to the enemies of God. It is an announcement that goes back to man's fall into sin. Judgment comes as a result of sin. Judgment comes and the serpent's head will be crushed. But like we see here, like we see in the history of the world, the serpent always seeks to fight against its fate. Always seeks to strike the heel of the one who comes to execute judgment. And here the Lord says to Assyria, Go ahead, man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect your strength. As we saw in uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Assyria is at full strength. And the Lord says, Go ahead, 
Try to resist my judgment. Try to resist the Lord's arm with all your might. In doing so, they will see how utterly weak, how truly unable they are to stand under the hand of Almighty God. With that announcement of the coming scatterer, Nahum then reiterates the purpose for sending the scatterer, which we see in verse 2. Right? It's for the restoration of the majesty of God's people who had been plundered and plundered, who had been trampled, whose branches had been broken. Right? Nineveh had emptied Israel of its glory and had destroyed the holy habitation of God's people. The position that Israel finds itself in at this point is a a shell of what it once was under the united monarchy. Where prosperity and, and security had prevailed, before God's people's hearts were led astray by their neighbor's idolatries, for which at this point they've been humbled by the Lord's chastisement. But you see, now is the time for restoration. And the time for judgment to be done to Assyria. That they may have their glory poured out from them like they had poured out the glory of God's people. No sooner does that announcement end than the scatterer's army is seen on the horizon as a united force there in verses 3 and 4. A united force of of soldiers dressed for battle, carrying red shields, which are likely red with blood from the Assyrian resistance outside the inner walls of Nineveh. In the suburbs of the city are seen flashes of light, like lightning, as the sun reflects off the gleaming metal armor of the chariots with riders On those chariots with deadly spears ready to attack. Chariots and brandished spears are are the pinnacle of military technology at this point. And we see that the scatterer comes with soldiers that are trained and experienced. And this is a, a fearsome sight to behold. The approach continues. If the chariots race madly through the streets, they rush to and fro through the squares. If the invading army lays claim to every possible escape route. There's no way out of the city now. All of the outlying territory is overtaken by the scatterer. This image highlights a universal fact. A universal fact about God's enemies. They are hemmed in. They have nowhere to go. They have nowhere to escape from his judgment. Which means, as we see in verse 5, resistance is futile. Seeing the enemy advancing without hesitation and with great skill, the king of Assyria remembers that he too has skilled soldiers. He too has officers. And and he too used to invade other people's cities and destroy those cities. 
and burn them to the ground. But now Nineveh itself is under siege, completely surrounded. The enemy is pressing in. The Assyrian officers and their soldiers, they, they stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. But by the time they get there, the siege tower is already being set up. It's it's too late. Who can resist the judgment of God or hold off his advance? No one. No one can. If even his temporal judgments are inescapable and irresistible, how then could his judgment on the day of the Lord be escaped or resisted? The answer, of course, is it can't. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? It's vanity to plot against the Lord. The kings of the earth set set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Yet here we see with vivid clarity that amid all of their pride, all their vile works, Lord scoffs. The Lord laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. For when he removes the strength from them, they collapse. Right? He, he had been using Assyria as his instrument. And when he holds back that power, they collapse into nothingness. Their, their efforts are useless against them. So then what happens? Well, the invader enters. The, the judge comes. Verse 6, the river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Literally, it reads, the palace is dissolved. Of course, there's some poetic imagery here of the downfall of the king, how power is dissolved. But this verse also depicts the literal collapse of Nineveh. The city of Nineveh, you may know, was situated along the Tigris River. And the gates of the river here seem to refer to the dams that were used to control the flow of the two tributaries of the Tigris that actually ended up flowing through the city of Nineveh, and that's how they got their water supply. One ancient Greek historian recorded that the destruction of Nineveh was in part due to the heavy rains that caused the water of the river to rush in and flood the city, actually. It seems that the invading army ended up cutting off the water supply by using the existing dams. And when the water level rose because of the heavy rains that had come, the floodgates were opened. And so rather than having to break down the walls themselves, 
The enemy army simply opened the floodgates and the waters came in and wiped away the walls of Nineveh. The water rushed in, breached the city walls, leveling them. And in walked the army. And once the scatterer gains access to the city, it's over. Instantly. It is settled, which is probably a more accurate translation of the beginning of verse 7. It is settled. She is stripped. She is carried off. As the Lord had declared his decree against Nineveh, so it is. And like in the manner of the Assyrians, the invading army comes in and captures the royalty and the nobles and carries them off to their capitals. And all that's left in this mighty and great city are the remnants, are her servants, and her servants in mourning, decrying the once glorious and now utterly destroyed and devastated city. The glory that once characterized this city now floods out. It's gone. Everything that they built Everything that they prided themselves in is utterly gone. And as we look over the ruin here, we see that Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. This is actually the first time here in verse 8. The first time since verse 1 of chapter 1 that Nahum actually names the city of Nineveh. It's interesting, isn't it? Because at the beginning of Nahum, he says, this is the burden of Nineveh. And the first time he actually says Nineveh is when Nineveh is utterly destroyed. Gone. Carried off. He waits for the right moment when Nineveh has no glory. That name of the city that used to cause fear among God's people will be a name of ruins as it comes to nothing. David says in Psalm 27.1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And as, as Nahum with this foretelling here, Nahum with this foretelling is, is calling on Judah to do the same thing that David says God's people ought to do there back in Psalm 27. At the end of Psalm 27, David says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And that's what Nahum is telling the people of Judah to do. In recounting this foretelling, right? Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your hearts take courage. Wait for the Lord. Because what will be left of mighty Nineveh is nothing. 
Nothing. Her people flood out and dare not stop as they plundered, as they plundered God's people. The nations around them now come to plunder them. Nineveh is plundered of all its former glory, all of its vain glory, the treasures that Nineveh had boasted in. Right? Every time Nineveh, the Assyrians, went to some other nation, some other city, they went in and they, well, we know what they did, right? They slaughtered people and they took captives and then they plundered everything that those people had. And they boasted in those treasures and they they held them securely behind the walls of Nineveh. But you see, the treasures they had boasted in belonged to the Lord. And the Lord distributes them as he pleases. He sends them wherever he chooses. All that's left is desolation and ruin. A scene that that grips any who remain. Even our English translation captures it, doesn't it? You could hear it, the poetry. You, you You could see it vividly in your minds, right? Hearts melt, knees tremble, anguish is in all loins, all faces grow pale. That's what's left. Utter fear and terror for what will become those who remain. Because we see that the enemy has been disarmed. The ones who were fierce have lost their teeth. Where is the lion's den? The prophet asked. The kings of Nineveh used to liken themselves to ferocious lions. If you look at some of the carvings of the Assyrians, you'll see that they, they carved on their weapons and on their inscriptions and in the words of their annals, they would have pictures of lions and they describe themselves as lions in the way that they treated their enemies. Ferocious, strangling their prey. They boasted in their viciousness and the torture that they imposed upon their victims. But the lion's den has been destroyed. And the lions have no more prey. The lions of Nineveh and those who walk in their way turn out to be no match for the lion of Judah when he comes to judge the nations. Psalm 2 goes on, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. See, for any who wish to be saved from the wrath that is pictured in Nahum 2 will only find refuge in the son of God, Christ crucified. For if he is rejected, this is the fate. Those who reject him will face his wrath on the day of judgment. Something that clearly comes out in the 2 Thessalonians passage that we read. See, when the Lord's judgment comes, his enemy is disarmed. That's, that's what 
the foretold destruction of Nineveh declares, does it not? That, that the enemies of God cannot stand and their destruction will be swift and decisive. We're left by the end of verse 12 with a portrait of ruin of a once haughty and terrifying empire that's utterly destroyed, that's completely emptied of all of its former glory, the most powerful and vicious tyrants on the face of the earth, we see, lose their teeth before the Lord. They cower. They scatter. They're expelled into utter darkness. Now, how did this happen? And what does this all mean? And what does the invading army and the desolate city mean for Nineveh? Verse 13 tells us what it means. I am against you, declares the Lord. What's foretold about what's coming for Nineveh will be no accident of history. Proverbs 21.1 reminds us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Which reminds us again, the empires rise and empires fall at the decree of God. And God alone. You see, history, brothers and sisters, is never a collection of unrelated events that take place in a meaningless universe. Not one moment. Every moment in every place is the Lord at work for his purposes. Now, now we may talk about secondary causes, right? How the Babylonians had more advanced weaponry or superior military strategy. But you see, if we read uh, the history, and that's all we see, then we've missed the point. Because if we, we, would, we would miss the primary cause here. The theological cause, the cause that God wants us to know, is the cause for Nineveh, Nineveh's demise. I am against you, declares the Lord. That's why Nineveh fell. Syria fell for that one reason and that one reason alone. Because the Lord of hosts, the Lord of his armies, the Lord whose power is infinite, the Lord whose power is unmatched, came against his enemy and he prevailed. But his enemies who who while standing, they, they ramble on and on and on about their wisdom and their power and their glory. But in the day of the Lord's choosing, they are silenced. They can say nothing else. But God has the last word on Nineveh. His word of opposition that explains their complete and utter ruin. Is there anything more terrifying in the world than that the Lord would declare himself against you as he did to Nineveh? Could, could there be anything more terrifying 
Because such a declaration means nothing less than sure judgment at his powerful hand. Which is the picture that we get right here in Nahum chapter 2. Now we may ask the question, well, if all have sinned, why then is the Lord continually working deliverance for his wayward people, but decreeing judgment upon the nations? That's not fair. Why is it that Judah gets to stand? Why do they only face his chastisement but not utter annihilation? Why is Judah not completely consumed like like Assyria? As we see here so clearly, the Lord's justice. And of course, the answer that we are led to can only be found in the Lord's mercy. Can it not? Right? It's not that Judah's sin doesn't warrant God's wrath and curse. Surely it does. Just like our sin warrants God's wrath and curse. But rather that wrath and that curse in the context of God's covenant promise is reserved for the Redeemer of God's people who would face God's judgment in their stead. For Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Galatians 3.13 The humiliation of Nineveh cast by Nahum in such vivid imagery in the course of history proves really to be a, a small thing. In comparison to the humiliation of God's own son who bore the sins of his people. That for our sake he made him to be sin who know no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you remember that as Christ hung on the cross he cried out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bore in himself the wrath and curse of God for our sin. See, the wrath of God that was prophesied to be poured out in temporary measure upon Nineveh was poured out upon the Son of God for the sins of all of those whom he would redeem by his blood. So that all of those who rest in him by faith would never, ever, Ever hear the words that were declared upon Nineveh and are and will be declared upon all the enemies of God. I am against you. But instead would have the resounding words of grace in their ears and stirring their hearts. I am for you. That's the promise that you, brothers and sisters, Cling to even as this world and its afflictions say otherwise. The Lord through Nahum intends that by seeing that he prevails against his enemies. That you would know the deep and abiding conviction of faith. That his word never ever fails. Though his people may be afflicted. He is faithful 
to fulfill his promises. For if he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Judah saw this in the fall of Nineveh. Judah saw their God faithful. As this news was was foretold to them. Beloved, you see it in the fullness of Christ your Lord. And in that we can rejoice. And in that we can be glad. For the Lord is for us and never against us. Let's pray together. Lord, as we contemplate your justice, as we contemplate our own sin, we are reminded, even through the prophet Nahum, what every sin deserves. Yet we are also reminded of the fact that you, O Lord, are merciful. And you are faithful to your promises of your people. And so, Lord, as we consider these things, we come with thankful hearts and ask, Lord, that you would continue to remind us of your deep and abiding faithfulness that comes to us through Christ our Lord. We pray these things in his name. Amen.